Sometimes going slow is the key to growing fast. And that's something that it's hard for entrepreneurs to fully realize that your first six to 10 people are really important, not just to build at that stage, but then to attract the next level of talent. This is a show for startups, hosted by experienced VCs that cuts to the chase to give you concise, relevant, and actionable advice to achieve sustainable growth. This is Go Slow to Grow Fast, a Mercury podcast. Today, we're going to dive into the very timely but very important topic of how company performance impacts fundraising valuations. But today, we're going to put a twist on it. We want to really dive into how hiring grade A talent affects the ability to reach product market fit and therefore improve company performance and get a better valuation. And we have none other than a very good friend of mine, Blair Guru, co-founder of Mercury, here with us today to shed some light on how founders can benefit from hearing how a venture capitalist thinks about fundraising in the current economic environment. Blair, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Heath. Great to be here. Thank you. It's always interesting to sit and talk with you. You've had over 20 years experience in the space. You've seen a lot, three down markets. We're currently going through one. And today we really want to get a sense of how founders should be thinking about this current environment and why hiring the best talent matters. Yeah, and I like how you put it, grade A talent. I feel like I'm going to a grocery store looking at eggs, but it, like, it really is important. This environment, I think, is unlike any I've seen because are we in a recession? Are we not? I think for founders, especially young ones, it's just really difficult to discern. So yeah, happy to answer some questions and dive in. Before we get too far into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, an overview of Mercury, and help us understand how Mercury is different from other VC firms. Sure. So Blair Guru, one of the co-founders of Mercury, founded Mercury back in 2005 with a partner that you know really well, Dan Watkins. We're really an answer for really early stage entrepreneurs in Texas. There wasn't a seed stage fund. And so we launched a fund back in 2005, partnered with DFJ, and it was called DFJ Mercury. And now it was a model to, could we spin out entrepreneurs from universities? Could we back those seed stage entrepreneurs in a pretty bad environment? 2005 was a recessionary environment as well. A lot of people out there, including Austin Ventures, had said, hey, we think venture's dead. It's more of a private equity environment. And what had happened in 2005 is that when you had companies like Facebook and Google, Twitter was getting ready. It was really the ascent of a lot of the technology that's the building blocks for today. We built DFJ Mercury through a couple of fun cycles. We learned a lot. And then a couple of my partners and I respun DFJ Mercury into Mercury of today. So we are an early stage venture fund. We focus on entrepreneurs in the middle of the country. All we invest in is software as a service, so SaaS companies that are B2B, business to business, and B2B to C. We can talk about that in a bit. But what makes us different is we take a private equity approach. If you think of private equity, they come in and they buy an entrepreneur's business from him. And then they put in their own processes, their own rules, their own playbooks. But we said, what if we could take that private equity playbook about how to build a software company efficiently? What about giving that to that early stage entrepreneur so they don't have to sell as early because they're screwing stuff up just because they haven't done it before? So we are all about giving back to that entrepreneur. We're very operationally minded. And as you know, our mantra for the entrepreneur is go slow 
to grow fast. Yeah, entrepreneurs really dig in when we usually tell them that. They scratch their heads and like, tell me what that means. How'd you get there? How'd you really come up with this notion of go slow to grow fast? Yeah, I think what, to your point, grade A talent, like you talked about in the opening, if you've been around the block, meaning you've worked at a large software company, you've worked at a large company that drives innovation, and you've been there for 10, 12, 15 years, you understand those innovation cycles really well, but you also have really good pattern recognition. You can tell when something's working. You can tell when your customer journey is perfect. The product you're taking to market is great. And so what we're doing is we're dealing with entrepreneurs that many times don't have those experiences. They have a great idea. They are the product themselves. They want the problem solved. And then they go out and they hire whoever they can. Because as an entrepreneur, you're preaching a vision and you're like, I can't give you very money. I'm giving you worthless equity, but leave your job and come work for me. And so how do they level up from there? You recently did an article with TechCrunch and you talked a lot about how to entrepreneurship pitch you in this current environment. One of the first things you said in the article was that in this environment, they can't create this fake pressure to help you make a decision. That speaks a lot to mindset of the entrepreneur. What are the top things you're looking for when you think about the entrepreneur's mindset in general and specifically in this environment? Keith, you and I talk about this with the rest of our partners at Mercury. We always want to be ready have a prepared mind. I think uh, Excel Ventures, when they launched way back when, late 90s, 2000s, talked about that at first. We're looking for entrepreneurs with a prepared mind, meaning you've done the research, you've talked to mentors and advisors, you know the different stages you have to take your company at, and that also means people. So the things we look for in entrepreneurs, we want to be passionate. Because if you're passionate about what you're doing, that means I can talk you into taking a job at lower pay and worthless equity. And I don't mean to like just throw it on the ground, but that's what it is at first. You want them to be product oriented. They have to be oriented around the solution they're bringing to market. But then they also have to be highly coachable and very, very detail oriented. But then they have to know when to hire that A-grade talent. How do you upgrade the people you brought in early, not remove them from the equation, but have them do their role that they're very, very good at? And how do you do it efficiently when you bring people in? Because obviously at that seed stage, you can't afford A-grade talent like you could at a Google or a Meta. And so entrepreneurs, we want them to have that question. We want them to come to us saying, hey, how can you help us get there with the talent we need to get to the next level? It's really interesting because I take this job for worthless equity and low pay, and then there's a risk that someone might be brought in over me. Like how, when you think about building a culture, how important are those attributes for that grade A talent, the people, and what kind of value they add to the team when you think about building a culture? Yeah, no, it's almost like you have to have selfless individuals who are coming into the startup early because they want the experience. Not just, I want the experience of not having a boss. I want the experience of working in a fast, innovative culture. It's, I am really good at product and I'm going to run product. And I know coming in, I'll be VP of product. But over time, as the company matures, I know someone will be hired above me to be the chief product officer. Or I'm coming in as the director of sales and I've got to bring in inside sales resources. But I know over time, eventually someone will be brought in above me. And the startup talent game is all about finding those people who will work two to three years, gain awesome experience, 
and then they'll level up at the next company. It's really, really hard to level up at the same company in those VP and C-level roles because you just don't have enough time. If you're a founder and you come to me or you for venture money, there's not a lot of time. There's no on-the-job training. Right, absolutely. And, w- and when we talk about go slow to grow fast, it's not for people to learn. It's because we're trying to unwind some of the mistakes the entrepreneurs may have made because they were moving so quickly to find product market fit. And it's a really detailed process, but it's one that we think has a lot of value. So you would also expect then that there's some bumps and hurdles that the founders need to overcome in managing that talent. So in your opinion, what will you say are some of the biggest challenges to attracting and then retaining that talent for the period of time you need it as you compare that to what the person might be expecting when they join the company? So if you think about your first five to 10 employees, maybe you get lucky and you have a C-level or a VP-level employee who can stay for two to three years, because that, that's an eon startup culture. But typically, you're finding people that are director level, and you're giving them a VP title. When you then go out after you're at a million, two million, maybe a five million run rate, and you start attracting A-grade talent, they're going to want to know the talent you have in the place currently. And they're going to ask these employees, how's the culture? How's the learning environment? How is the CEO, the founder to work with? And they're going to want to know that they've got really good people to work with. Now, some VPs or C-levels, when they're brought in, they clean house. And that's just the nature of the game. So as a founder, if you can do a good job developing young talent to where they're not expecting to be running their department for the next three to five years, and that it will be understood that when they hit their Peter principle and they're raising their hand or things, they're spinning plates and the plates are breaking and they're falling, hey, you're not gone. We're going to go find someone else. And if you stay around, you're going to get mentored by an expert who doesn't necessarily have the skill set to go from zero to one, but they can take us from one to five or five to 10. And that's something that it's hard for entrepreneurs to fully realize that your first six to 10 people are really important, not just to build at that stage, but then to attract the next level of talent. So what are some of the key trends you're seeing while it's a down market? Towards 2020 and 2021, talent was at a premium. With our model, middle of the country, we were always looking at grade A talent that was a little bit cheaper than the coast. And that was one of the benefits of growing your company. But with the recession taking place, if we are in a recession, and all the layoffs that happened in tech, there's now lots of great people, lots of great VP and C-level talent. What I'm finding from talking to a lot of executives from larger companies, they actually aren't all looking for a full-time role. A lot of them would like to go into consulting and be a fractional executive. And at Mercury, and we stole this from private equity firms, we have a number of fractional execs we work with. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to level up, and you've got three great people in your sales team, what about getting a fractional sales executive who may work five, 10 hours a week, maybe 20? That way you can afford A-grade talent. It just permeates throughout the department and everyone magically starts to level up or you see that more is being asked of them and maybe they should leave. I think fractional talent, first and foremost, is a great way for entrepreneurs to get the most out of what they need and then move into a point where they can afford a talent on a full-time basis down the road. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute with you. All right. I'm a CEO of a company. I've done it before. I want everything in-house. I want all my own people. I have to have control. What do you tell me? How do you convince me that this fractional model is real? I should use that compared to what I believe or what I know to be true. Yeah. So if I'm a venture capitalist and you've taken my money and I'm on your board, it's really hard because we know what the right answer is. And it's either you can 
afford a talent full-time or you can't, but you know you need more out of your existing team. It's just a definition of have and have-nots. So if you don't have it, are you going to sacrifice and bring in B talent that's cheaper when you know you need A talent? And what we try to do is we try to put them in front of really good people and then convince them that, hey, maybe you do rent to perm. Let's rent the condo for a while, fractionally, and then they're going to get interested and maybe they want to go full time. We think that's great. But the hard, hard thing for entrepreneurs who are super thrifty, super resourceful, these are great traits. They do that to a fault and they penny pinch with people and they're like, you know what? B plus is good enough. It's not good enough. You know, what's interesting is where the stage where Mercury invest, it's all about product market fit. So when you think about founders achieving product market fit, sometimes they don't effectively define and understand what product market fit is. So let's just start there as we shift to how talent affects product market fit. From a Mercury perspective, will you define product market fit and what that means and where founders sometimes get that wrong? Yeah. So all founders know MVP, minimum viable product, the lean startup model, Eric Rise and so forth. That is we've built the minimum needed for an early adopter customer to start using the product and hopefully paying. Now, we think MVP is someone's actually giving their own money for it. Product market fit, though, early stages means there are dozens of early adopter customers who believe you have enough features in your product to warrant spending money on it. Now, where entrepreneurs get confused is they confuse an early adopter customer who's crazy, like you and me, VCs or entrepreneurs, they really need a feature, which is why they're not using an incumbent product like an existing company. It's why people go to a platform provider like Snowflake rather than just using someone else for their data lake, some legacy provider. And so entrepreneurs get confused by saying, we've got great product market fit versus early. And in our model that we use, part of our, our operational hygiene, we basically slow the entrepreneur down and say, look, you've built a customer journey to that early adopter customer. But once you get to that early majority customer, that whole crossing the chasm, yep. that early majority customer, that's where your total addressable market is. That's how you build a $10, $20 million business. Their needs and their journey are different. And so a lot of times our capital gets involved when we take companies from early product market fit to early majority product market fit. And that's difficult for startup executives to do. You usually have to bring someone who's been there and done that. And that's where that A-grade talent comes in. So how important then is that role of that A-grade talent in terms of the specific qualities they should be looking for when they're hiring these people? Yeah, let me start with what you brought up, the SaaS lifecycle. We noticed over a decade that SaaS companies are built about 60 to 80% exactly the same. They all go through the same market motion. They all need the same types of people. They all use the same tools, workflows, you name it. The special sauce, that last 20% is what's unique to your product offering that's solving a problem in the market. As an entrepreneur, you run product. You bring some engineers in. Product and engineering goes back and forth, builds that MVP. When you start getting product market fit, you start hiring outside salespeople, not you, the founder, who you can sell anything. That outside salesperson understands the value prop, and they can start selling. And then because you have a lot of customers, you build out your customer success organization, and then your salespeople need more leads, so you start building marketing. And so the SaaS lifecycle is all about how each one of those departments is added to the mix. 
But the difficulty becomes and when you're adding those salespeople and they need more leads and they need a more expanded market than those early adopter customers. We talk about this all the time. If you're an entrepreneur in a certain industry and you've worked in that industry, who are the customers you're going to go to first? And ones to know. People you know. But people you know, right? It's like me going to raise money for my family. A little bit easier my friends than it is from someone independent. And so you got to look at those early adopter customers and say, how did they actually get there? What special deals? What special favors? They obviously trust the entrepreneur. And then getting to a much more difficult customer, they're going to look for experience in your VPs of product, in your VPs of sales, in your VPs of marketing. They're going to look at your head of sales and be like, wow, you worked at Google? for eight years, and they're gonna be like, absolutely. And they're gonna be like, all right, credibility, trust, versus a lot of startup executives who kind of pop from startup to startup, and they're really good at that early de definition of product market fit, but they couldn't sell a Shell or an Exxon or a GE their life dependent on. That's just not what they do. And so getting to those talent, like the connective tissue of talent, to scale up product, to truly understand what that customer is looking for, to scale up sales, to run a customer service organization that has customer success managers in it. To us, it's like you get to that 1 million to 5 million run rate. That's kind of where we need to see EA talent start to slot in. So give us some examples of companies that have achieved product market fit successfully and how the talent has made a difference. Yeah, one of my best examples is a company that we loved working with called Trendkite. Trendkite was started by two great founders, Matt and AJ in Austin, Texas, and their vision was to be able to calculate ROI on PR spend. PR spend is almost like ad spend for a billboard. It's impressionistic. You have no idea how to track it. pretty it. soft. Pretty soft. And they were like, no, no, we can do this. But that idea was very much an inspirational idea. It wasn't the bare bones features that comp companies needed. And so Eric Huddleston is now an advisor at Mercury. He was brought in as CEO to really help better define product market fit. And as he put in his playbooks, Trendkite scaled from 100,000 of recurring revenue to a million to 5 million in 18 months. It was a very, very quick ramp. What I never saw from another CEO or entrepreneur that we had backed was Eric's ability to bring in A-grade talent every six months. Wow. This was his eighth SaaS company, and he knew the types of people that he needed. And he wasn't bringing people in because people weren't doing their job. He was bringing people in because he could anticipate the challenges the company would face by scaling one of their departments, by selling to bigger organizations, you name it. And I remember, you weren't working at Mercury at that point, but I remember coming back to all of our partners and just going, guys, I've never seen this before. And I've seen other companies do it. So Omer Tarek, founder and CEO of Cart.com. Cart is an e-commerce as a service platform. They have rolled up 10 companies that do shopping carts for e-commerce, marketing metrics, fulfillment. They do everything a direct-to-consumer brand would want. They identified the companies they want to go acquire. They raised the money to do it, and they built that company up. And they were the fastest growing company to 150 million recurring revenue ever. Did it in 16 months. Omer, same playbook. Now, he had run a division of Home Depot, built it to two and a half billion. So he knew what A-grade talent looked like. But again, every six to nine months, hiring somebody above. Now, that gets tricky because 18 months in, you've got two or three layers of people. And so what happens? 
Well, your bottom layer typically gets tired and they leave. You may have to move them into different departments, but but the best companies I've seen, they're growing two, 300% a year, but it's about every six to 12 months, they're bringing in another level of talent. So you've talked about these two founders, or one CEO and then a founder who had enough experience and perspective to understand why a great talent is going to win the day. When you think about a first-time founder, someone out there may be listening to this, what are the key attributes you believe they might need to adjust? They're very talented, very smart. They have this great vision, but they're a typical founder and they may not be thinking through the right lens of top grading. What would you tell them? The first piece is the best founders are very cash efficient, hopefully to a fault very, very early. They're rubbing two nickels together. They're only raising the money they need. They want to get overly diluted. Then it's almost the antithesis to tell them to go out and hire A-grade talent because A-grade talent wants to get paid. So you got to figure out creative ways of doing that. You can raise venture money, and the reason is to go get A-grade talent. You can buy a piece of the talent, which is fractional talent, or sometimes you can dilute yourself more than you want because some A-grade talent will take a lower pay for equity. And I think that's a key thing. But if you think about a founder, they typically don't want to get diluted. They don't want to ever over-equitize people. They don't want to overpay people. So that's real friction, I think, when a company is built. And I think the best founders I've found, Heath, they've done it a couple of times and seen success and seen failure. So then they're all in. But for a first-time founder, it's hard because it goes against the grain of what you instinctively believe you should be doing. No, that makes a lot of sense because then it ties into how fundraising valuations are impacted based on the quality of that, of that team. Coming full circle back to if you can achieve product market fit, then what kind of valuation should you get? So when you're thinking about a new deal and you're looking at the quality of the team and where they are with product market fit, how much leeway or give is there on your end when the quality of the team is top graded in a way where you believe they could achieve it versus someone's made a little bit more progress, but you're not too impressed with the team. Like, how do you look at those two scenarios in terms of valuation and what you're willing to pay for the deal? Yeah, no, great question, Heath. First off, I think entrepreneurs need to know that a lot of VCs, if they see a deal they like, but they don't necessarily believe in the team, not the founder, they gotta be in the founder, but the team, many times they walk away rather than having the hard conversation with the founder of saying, I like the company, but we got to replace the people because life's too short. The founder's got relationships there. I think what we try to do is we try to find opportunities where most of the team, there's a role for them at the company because they have all of that tribal knowledge of the company. It's just great. They need to stay there. But we're very open with the CEO and the founder about needing to do some upgrades. Now, why would you go raise venture money? Is it just to hire more salespeople, just to hire engineers? Well, no. You know you're going to need improvements in various areas. And I think what VCs have pattern recognition on is knowing exactly when to pull the trigger on hiring new people. And it's not necessarily replacing the person. There's always other roles or there's always ways they can be mentored. Sometimes it is replacing that person. But as an entrepreneur, to your question, I would just be open with your VC and be real open with yourself. Maybe do dry runs with advisors or mentors and be like, hey, if I'm going out, I'm an entrepreneur, you're a VC, we're buddies. I'm like, hey, Heath, be real with me, okay? I'm gonna go pitch 
like Silverton and Austin for capital? And do you think my team's good enough? And who should I be honest about and who not? And then your first question to me is, what do you think? And I give you the answer. But like entrepreneurs have to be real about who's good and who could be better. And not necessarily talk to the team about it, but just know that because you're going to get a lot of feedback on that fundraising trail. That's really insightful. In your experience, how often does that happen? If I look at 100 deals a month, or say I take 100 pitches a month, I don't. I look at about 100 deals a month. I probably take 10 pitches, one out of 10 pitches. Now, there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs, like, and it's not all those other deals aren't worthy of capital. They just don't fit what we're looking for at Mercury. Stage, geo, you name it. So I'll give entrepreneurs credit, but I bet only 10, 20% of entrepreneurs get real like that. And why do you think that's the case? I think they're scared. I think it's a fear of this is my only shot because they don't get that many pitches, right? You remember when we first met 20 years ago and you were interested in venture and angel investing, we talked about it. I remember having a discussion with you about boards. And I remember a question you had for me, right? We're at the Rice Business Plan Competition, a bunch of great young companies coming from all these MBA programs. And one of them pitched and they filled out their board. And I remember you asking me, you were like, hey, as a VC, do you like to see all the board members filled in or would you rather do it themselves? And I'm like, it depends. If the entrepreneur can attract great board members, that's great. But if they can't, it's better to wait until you have capital to do that. Because when a VC has to unwind the decisions made by that founder, it's hard. No founder, me, you, anyone, likes to be told they're wrong. And if you've built a relationship and you have to unwind a contract, it's just not good. Now, you need people to run your business. You need people to give you advice and give you board guidance. But it's just a rare founder that just has that thick enough skin to basically come in and say, hey, I've done the best I can. I know there's some holes here. I'd love to get your feedback on where you think we go next and when we upgrade talent. It's almost better for entrepreneurs not even to give their opinion unless asked, because that way they're getting pure advice back. And then you can tell, you know what? I actually think Blair's a great contributor to the team, and I'll make the decision on the VC that way. Because the VC's got to do pattern recognition. They're not spending all the time that you know. But deep down, every entrepreneur goes to sleep at night worrying about capital and worrying about talent saying, can I get there? It's really interesting because as they think about achieving product market fit, it takes all of the leaders across all the functions of the team. And I know we recently looked at some product market fit data associated with this rule of 40 concept. And I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about that and why we found it so fascinating. But also, why does talent matter there? Sometimes you hire people and they think they know everything. They think they know exactly where to go versus this concept has you continuously asking the question of, are you getting it right? It seems like it takes special talent to go there. It does. Tell us a little bit about that. No, it does. And Heath gets all the credit on this because he found this in the wild. And it was a great blog post by a guy named Rahul Vora, CEO of Superhuman. And so for everyone out there who doesn't know Superhuman, I bet a bunch of listeners do. It is like email on steroids. It's awesome. It's got all these shortcuts, much like Excel or Word shortcuts, and it allows people that are on email a lot to get through all their emails very, very quickly. And so Rahul and his team put Superhuman out there. They did it by invite only, right? They were gating their users and making it exclusive. But he got to a point eventually where he wasn't happy with his churn numbers, wasn't happy with his customer acquisition cost. And he had to figure out, how do I get better? How do I know I have product market fit? And he went out and talked to some of the best product managers in Silicon Valley, the people who had built Slack and Twilio and these other products. 
And what he came up with was his own playbook, but it was this whole framework to define what's your core persona. Think about product market fit. It's all about what are the core personas of the users of the product and dive deep. What's the demographic of the person? What's the age? What are their likes and dislikes? How do they use the product? And what Rahul came up with was most companies, most founders go after too many core personas, almost like too many types of companies. But what's really helpful is let's just find one persona, let's define it, but let's make sure I got product market fit. And what he came up with was a rule of 40, to your point. And that rule of 40 was, if I have 100 customers, I basically pull them and said, if I take my product away, if you couldn't use superhuman anymore, would you care? Would you be upset? Would you cry? And the next step was, why? What is it about the product that's killer? Like that meatball sub sandwich you just bought, right, in the middle of New York, and you're like, you're not taking my meatball sub. Why? Because I'm hungry, and I stand in line for 45 minutes for this, and I, I came to New York just for that meatball sub. What is it about it? And if you basically get feedback that only 20% of your current users wouldn't die in a vine, if they took that away, then you don't have product market fit. And so what he did was he put a framework in place about the questions to ask. And if you're not at 40 or at 20, then you go down to the next level. And that next level is, I'm okay. It wouldn't kill me, but I'd find another product. And you got to work at that next level to understand what are those features you need to add. So if I added those features to the product and I ran the poll again, could I get above 40? And it was an amazing blog post. I wish I had the URL here. But framework to define core persona, Rahul Vora. And, you know, when Heath brought this up, right, when you brought this up with me, I was amazed, right? We dug in, we told the whole partnership, and we've now used it with a lot of our companies. And I think we've had probably 25% of our portfolio run this analysis, almost drop everything. And I think it's something that a lot of CEOs and founders should be doing. But it really seems like for that to work, you've got to have the right people on the team that are constantly pursuing and falling in love with the problem, not trying to dictate the solution based on how they see, have a vision and see the world. No, it's a great point. As you and I always talk about, the best founders are ones that live the product. They live the problem. They are the solution. But their solution, are they the true user persona? There may only be a thousand of you. But if you move down demographically or feature-wise, you may find... 10,000. And if you move again, you may find a million. Well, and that goes back to your crossing the chasm concept of teams that understand how to do that. What are some examples, either in our portfolio or just companies you've seen that you try to get companies in our portfolio to, to pattern after that have done it really well? Yeah, great company. Still a seed level company for us, but Cooklist. So Cooklist was started by Daniel and Brandon, two great founders. One's based in Dallas, one's based in Austin. Cooklist is an app you can get on the app store and it essentially manages your pantry, okay? And there's a lot of pantry management apps out there for groceries, but it not only manages your pantry, it then allows you to order foods that are out of your pantry directly from grocers, get them delivered. But the killer app is they have downloaded probably 3 million recipes and they can guide you once they know what's in, the, in your pantry of what to make tonight. And so they've become a health and wellness superstar app within the millennials of people that love to cook. They love to stay healthy. It's like a super parent app, like a super mom or a super dad who's in charge of groceries and so forth. But I remember taking this to them probably two weeks after you showed me. 
because our partner Sam and I were having challenges, having them get product market fit. And they ran it in a month and they added features and they ran it again. And they found there were some core things that were keeping not the top 15%, but the next 30 from really using it all the time and making it like a core part of their day. And when they changed a couple of those things, boom. And the number one thing was they were told, when I want to put my own recipe in, it takes too long. And it takes me like 10 minutes to put it all in and get it uploaded. And when I do it, it needs to be 10 seconds. And they were like, how in the world am I going to do that? And you know where they turned? AI. So they had been using ChatGPT since GPT-2, building AI into the product, but then they started building AI into how they ingested recipes. And so you download the app, you upload your, your pantry, and then you start using recipes that they provide, but then now you can upload recipes that are like your family heirloom recipes and stuff, and they can do that in 10 seconds. Made all the difference in the world, but until they went through defining their core persona, and going through those steps, it was just really, really hard for them. Now, that's really interesting. I know the other one you and I had some experience with was Televet. Now, you had a little bit of good background there, given that Amy, your wife, is a veterinarian. But tell us a little bit about their journey and what you liked about that and how that's progressed since the investment. Yeah, so this is a deal you and I both work on, Labor of Love, and just so excited about where they are because they've broken through, right? They'll be at 12, 15 million run rate this year. But take it back three years ago, I met a company through one of our investors in the fund that said, hey, do you have time for this entrepreneur? I'm like, what's he doing? I was visiting Tulsa, George Kaiser Family Foundation. They said, hey, would you mind meeting with this entrepreneur, Price Fallon? He's building a platform to do telemedicine for veterinarians. And I was like, did you know my wife is a vet? And they're like, yeah, that's why we're asking you to. So <laughs> sat down with him, gave him some advice. My wife then gave him some advice. And she basically took him through a process, which was essentially what Rahul's doing at Superhuman. She was like, hey, telemedicine's interesting. I don't think the market's ready for it yet. But if you interview 100 vets, you'll find mental health is the number one problem. We've given our cell phones away. We don't have a paywall like human medicine. And everyone's texting us every time of the day. We're not getting paid. We're all overworked. We're all underpaid. You've got to manage that for us. Manage our emails, manage our workflow, manage our communication, manage the inside of the vet practice. If you do that, you'll have a winner. So they went out, talked to 300 vets, came back and said, hey, we like telemedicine, but that's just one feature of many. We're going to come out with this communication platform because we think that's what the market wants. And again, really excited by that. We did a seed investment and then COVID hit. Boom. What did everybody need? Telemedicine. So they scaled to about 1,000 customers in three weeks, just crazy. But what they found during that period, if you remember, people didn't want telemedicine, remember? No, they did not want telemedicine. They needed curbside. Curbside, yeah. People curbside. wanted to treat their pets like they treat their groceries. Curbside, going to the curb, waiting for your groceries to be put in your car, that became a thing that parents did that managed the kids. And they wanted to multitask, and so they wanted to perform the same act when they went to the vet to drop off their pet Hey, I'm going to be in the curb. You come out, grab my pet, and go in. Telemedicine never really took off. It did for like maybe a rash or something like that. But again, they went out, they talked to vets, they saw what was needed, and they came out with a curbside app. And they've just continued to do that process to really hone the user personas. And in this case, the clients of the veterinarians, what the vets need to service them. And they've just done a fabulous job of doing that. So I think in both of these cases, in these examples, 
the founders had some very deep product understanding and know-how. They focused in on the problem and then they hired the right people to help them execute on the opportunity. This has been really good, Blair. I think that hopefully we've given the audience a little bit of insight into how important hiring the right talent is, top grading your talent, hiring grade A talent is to achieving product market fit. Yeah, no, I think we had talked about it and it was really interesting, Heath. It's like this whole concept of vulnerability. If your company deserves growth capital, if it deserves venture capital, you owe it to yourself to talk to a lot of investors and get feedback on your team. But before you do that, practice with advisors and mentors. Be prepared for what that feedback is going to be because that's just part of the growth process, right? You and I jumping into any company, we could only do our job until a certain point and we would need somebody else that's got more experience, more understanding to come in after us. It is just a part of companies. It's just a part of startup life. But it takes a lot of vulnerability on the behalf of the entrepreneur to do that. We don't talk about that very often, but it was a great question that you had. I think that's a real great takeaway that entrepreneurs can have, and you'll be more successful at raising venture, more successful at raising grade A talent or hiring grade A talent, and overall, you can fulfill your dreams and change the world. Awesome. Thanks, Blair. This has been great. All right. Take care, man. Look forward to the next time.